Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Today, we're speaking with the editor of the soon-to-be-re-released classic Land and Taxation, Professor Nick Tiedemann. Um, he edited this book with the authors Vic Blundell, Fred Pulvery, Mason Gaffney and Fred Harrison. Now, Nick was raised in, in Chicago and San Francisco. He got his first degree in maths and economics at Reed College and a PhD from the University of Chicago. Um, he's held positions at Harvard University, served as an economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and he moved to Virginia Tech almost 50 years ago where he became a full economic professor in 1985. Nick's authored over 100 professional articles focusing on public finance and improving the efficiency of public decision-making. And in, 19, in 2006, he wrote a book, Collective Decisions and Voting, The Potential for Public Choice. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you. So, Nick, um, we're going to get into the, the topics around um, land and taxation. I just wonder if you can give the readers and uh, the listeners um, some idea of how you got into that space. What drew you to it? Well, it started when I was six years old. Uh, my father worked at the Henry George School of Social Science in Chicago. And uh, I would go there on the weekends. And one day when I was uh, out on the fire escape where he allowed me to play, uh, he joined me out there. And as we looked at the city of Chicago, he said to me, isn't it strange that people think they can own land? And that was my clue that this lifetime was going to be about the strangeness of supposing it is possible for people to have ownership over what nature provides for all of us. Wow. And so and you, you then you moved to San Francisco as well. Is that right? Yeah, uh, yes. My father took over the uh, regeneration of the Henry Ford School of Social Science in San Francisco. And uh, so I grew up there. And uh, Go ahead. When I went to college, I thought I would major in mathematics, but mathematics became difficult and economics was easy. So I, my mat, uh, undergraduate major was mathematics and economics, but then uh, at the graduate level, I moved to economics. And, and you moved to the University of Chicago. Yeah. Actually, there was a step in between. Uh, in a rather unusual uh, event, I received a letter from Washington University offering, well, with a, uh, a letter that said, in the envelope, you'll find a postcard, write your name and a and your graduate record examination scores on the card, and that will be an application for an assistantship. That was easy to do, so I did it, and a week later, they offered me a fellowship. So I, I spent my first year at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, but a professor there suggested I should look for better university, and that's how I wound up at the University of Chicago. And um, and Chicago, as was as, as readers of the corruption of economics will will remember, was one of the schools that did most to get rid of um, Henry George. 
Yes. Uh, I was advised by Milton Friedman that I shouldn't let my interest in Henry George be known if I wanted to succeed in economics. Uh, and it took a while for me to get back around to Henry George's ideas. I was known primarily as an urban economist and then as a public choice economist, uh, partly because it didn't seem to me that there was much that could be researched about land value taxation. It was so obvious that it was the best source of revenue. I didn't know what else could be said about it. But eventually I did find things that could be said, said about uh, taxing land. And I know that you, you, your PhD was on three approaches to improving urban land use. Yes. And it, it, I know we're going we're gonna to get into the, the book's topic, and that's one of the things, I guess, which, which for me stands out the most, is that there was a lot of conversation still, even in 1994 when the book came out, about agricultural or, and versus urban land, um, whereas urban land seems to be the place where the, the biggest value increases are. Yeah. Yes, uh, both... Uh, my father and Mason Gaffney stressed that almost all land value is in cities. Mm. And that was part of my understanding from a very early age. And did you, did your father inspire you to, to study the urban land value stuff then? <sighs> well, yes. Um, in the conversation that he didn't remember afterward, I remember that as I was going off to college, he said to me that he hoped I wouldn't become just a mathematician. Uh, and uh, Henry George's ideas were uh, constantly discussed in my house. So I was always aware of uh, the possibility, but it was only because mathematics became difficult, really, that I moved into economics. And difficult as in, as in intellectually challenging? Or... Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, or just not satisfying for the effort put into understanding, you might say. I... I probably could have succeeded at some level, but it just it didn't inspire me. Uh, yeah. And e economics uh, had interest for me. And and so you got um, Milton Friedman advising you not to mention the swear word of Henry George. Um, did you have much interaction with the other big economists at Chicago at the time? Then, like um, Stigler and Buchanan, and uh, I had a course from Stigler. Buchanan was not there. Uh, I had two courses from Friedman. Um, I, I had courses from the prominent economists there. And in my last year, when it was known that I was heading for Harvard, the head of the department, Arnold Harberger, challenged me to notice whether I had better access to the professors as a graduate student at Chicago or as an assistant professor at Harvard. And his speculation was correct. As a graduate student in Chicago, I could go down the halls and keep knocking on the doors until I found a professor who was willing to talk to me. At Harvard, when I wanted to talk to a professor, I had to go through a secretary and get an appointment two weeks in advance. Uh, so it was indeed a very open place at Chicago uh, compared to the more uh, insular uh, atmosphere at Harvard. And what was it? What was the draw to Harvard then? Well. Uh, it was a place with the, the best reputation. I, I had offers from uh, several schools. I was known at that time as an urban economist, and urban economics was hot because the cities that had burned in the summer of 1967. And I uh, was a promising student because already as a graduate student, I had a couple of publications. 
but it turned out that Harvard was not a good place for me because I didn't find anybody who was there who was interested in working on my ideas with me. Right. And I, I didn't prosper there. So it was uh, appropriate, really, for them to decline to promote me and make me look for another place. And that's where, is it the, the Virginia Tech come in then? Yes. Right. Uh, out of the blue, I got an offer of a one-year postdoctoral fellowship at Virginia Tech. And I thought I'd go over there for a year, but I wound up staying. And it's it's 50 years next year. Yes. And I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything. Just um, it must have been it must have felt, must have felt like home to you. Yes, uh, it. I uh, published a number of my most widely cited papers in my first few years at Virginia Tech. It, it just uh, provided the environment and the colleagues who were just right for uh, the development of my ideas. At that time, they were ideas in uh, collective decisions and voting theory. And so, so what is it that you that you um, your insights around that then around the collective decision making? Well, um, there is a great interest in this time in something that you call in England the alternative vote, AV, and in the United States is called instant runoff voting, uh, and. I think it's an important development, but it's not the best. The best voting idea is one associated with the Marquis de Condorcet, who proposed back in 1785 that the winner of election should be the candidate, when there is one, who can beat all the others head to head. And an important component of my research was to show that in the existing data, it looks like there is a Condorcet winner, a candidate who can beat all the others head to head, about 99.9% .9 of the time. So, uh, and you need some backup for the case where you have a voting cycle. Uh, and it doesn't matter much which of a number of different uh, backup systems you use because they would be used so rarely. And, and, and if you, so moving from urban economics then to collective decision-making and public finance, is that what what what's what what made that link obvious yeah. for you? Well, uh, a large part of my thinking has to do with the question of how we decide what the right thing to do is when we disagree among ourselves, and voting is one answer to that. And uh, there's a sense in which the the question of how to decide whether a proposed change in land use is a good thing is a variation on that theme. And the question of what's a good tax is also a question of what's the right thing to do when we disagree. So I'm just thinking now that, um, that, that question, so if I, if I heard you correctly, how to decide what to do when we disagree seems to be possibly the single most important question right now that certainly we've got because we seem unable to do that in the uk yes. and from what i understand from the us um you seem to be having similar challenges yes another important component of my thinking is that we do well when we allow secession so i was very pleased that uh the uk gave uh scotland the opportunity to decide whether they wanted to secede 
uh, I think that it would be a, a good thing if they have another chance now that conditions have changed. The main barrier to secession, I think, is the economies of scale and defense. Uh, we don't want to break ourselves into components so small that uh, we get taken over by aggressors. So that, to me, uh, shows how important it is that we solve somehow the problem of war so that we can get to a world in, in which we can have small communities in which people can agree and separate if they don't agree. And and so I guess you would be in favour of a, a vote like um, we had in, in 2016 around Brexit. I'm not saying whether you'd be in favour of the decision or not, but just yeah. that, that we're able, that, it, that parties can have the right to leave if they choose. Yes, and and so because I hear there's there's talk in the in the U.S. just around some of the um, actions in Texas, and there's people in Texas saying they want to secede, and similarly in Florida. Yes, and Idaho has been a center of secessionist thinking from time to time, and uh, also uh, the state of Vermont. Um, my understanding is that. W when Vermont petitioned to join the union, the first state to do so after the initial 13, they did so with a resolution that specified they could back out if they wanted to. But when Congress passed a resolution admitting Vermont, they passed it without that clause. So Vermont was admitted to the union without agreement as to whether Vermont could uh, remove itself or not. Uh, an interesting historical quirk. Um, I think that we're not ready for secession yet in the United States, um, but we're getting closer. Hmm. So, what other what other insights have you had through all your your you know your hundred papers and and near sixty years of research yeah. um, into how to make decisions collectively when we disagree yeah. among ourselves? Ah. Um, well, in another direction, I have made some suggestions as to how you could have a better system of proportional representation. You may know that the single transfer of vote is used in Ireland and various other places. And, and I have examined the limitations of single transfer of vote and what might be done with fancy new computers to improve on them. Um, but I've also been working on a theory of global economic justice that is inspired by the ideas of Henry George, but with a slight variation. I think that the first principle of global economic justice should be that we have equal rights to the earth. And we don't achieve that by dividing it up into equal portions, but rather by uh, sharing the rent equally on a global basis. Uh, and the other essential principle of global economic justice is that people have rights to themselves. But one of the ways that people can use rights to themselves is by forming communities that limit what people can do within the community. Uh, 
and that is not a uh, restriction on people's rights to themselves as long as they have adequate opportunities to leave. So I've come to decide to, to the conclusion that the essential meaning of a right to yourself is an adequate opportunity to leave the community that you are part of and join some other community or start your own. And, and societally, that's it. To leave your own community used to be a truly enormous thing to do. Potentially catastrophic, right? Yes. Uh, but here in America, we are filled with people who made that decision. So it's, it's perhaps more normal in this country than elsewhere. Uh, can I ask, so you, you said there about equal rights to the earth and we share yes. the rent equally globally. So given that most, like the, the highest rents are going to be in the cities, which I guess are in the... Ah, yes. N I need to modify the statement to take account okay. of that. There are three sources of rent, as I see it. One is nature. Yeah. One is urban infrastructure, or in infrastructure anyway. And the third is surrounding private development. And the part that needs to be shared globally is only the part due to nature. The part due to infrastructure should be used to pay for the infrastructure. And the part due to private development is somewhat up for grabs, but is probably used best if it is used to uh, provide encouragement for private development by rewarding people with the increases in uh, the value of land that are generated by private development, subtracting off the decreases in the value of buildings that are caused by development. Mm. Now, this was another interesting insight of my research, that anything that improves land values is almost certain to reduce the value of buildings. If you improve the land value, you add to the obsolescence of buildings. You shorten the time until they need to come down. Uh, and you make them suboptimal compared to what ought to be there. So you, uh, people who add to land value deserve a reward for that addition to land value. But out of that reward, we should take something for the fact that they destroy the value of buildings in the process. So is that because the, the, the community around the land changes so much that the, the building is no longer suitable to the purposes right. of the community? One of my favorite examples is taking a, uh, a subway line and extending it out into a suburban area where you have low-rise apartments. Yeah. If you have a low-rise apartment at a place that has become a, a, a stop for a uh, transit line, uh, the, the, those apartments are now trash. They need to be taken down and replaced by tower blocks so that the appropriate number of people can be served by being close to the station. So what's your take on the, on the, we've got our energy crisis and I know you've got challenges as well. What's yes. your take on, on, on how you could solve or, you know, improve the, the energy challenges that we've yes. got or the energy price challenges, whether yes. we've got an right. energy challenge yes. or a different one. Well, um, there's a temptation to uh, try to hold prices down, but that should be resisted because people need to economize. Ideally, what you would do is you would give people a lump sum subsidy 
while also raising prices so that they faced the incentive to uh, e economize. And you would put some kind of a uh, uh, capital levy on the owners of the energy resources to remove some of the sudden gain they have that they didn't deserve. Yeah. And in the in the UK, we, our prices have gone up more than any other country. Yes. Which is, which is strange because our we're less reliant on Russian energy than anyone else. But we yes. have this marginal pricing model um, for the energy company, so they can charge us the highest for everything. They can charge us the highest from whatever well, the highest marginal price price yeah. was. Yeah. Well, that's efficient. But in order to achieve fairness, you need to have something in the way of lump sum compensation for people for the fact that they face these high prices. Mm. And, and the lump sum compensation should come from the owners of the energy resources who have these windfall profits. Got it. And I know you, I was reading that you worked um, for Paul McCracken. Yes. when you're in the president's council and that was a time of high inflation because nixon was still in charge then wasn't he yes and it was just before at the end of my year at the council of economic advisors uh nixon uh went off the gold standard and uh, it was probably essential to go off the gold standard because you we would have had to have uh continual deflation of an erratic sort in order to stay on the gold standard. Uh, but it's also true that the uh, economic policy leading up to the going off the gold standard was rather reckless. So uh, I, I, I had sympathy with going off the gold standard, but at the same time, it would, be, it would have been nice if the, the, the situation in Vietnam hadn't led to uh, fiscal indiscipline uh, as a way of uh, hiding the fact that the war was so expensive. Mm. Yeah, I know. And we interviewed Michael Hudson a, a, a short time ago, obviously knew a lot about the, and did a lot on balance of payment stuff and the effect of the Vietnam War and, and, and military spending. Um, can I ask when, when you were so you were you in Washington with, when all the um, the Watergate scandal and everything hit? Uh, I let's see, Watergate was nineteen seventy two, and I was there from in seventy seventy one. So I was out of Washington by that time. Although at that time I was serving as a consultant at the Treasury on pension reform issues I, so just trying to get a take on on what it was like going through a major political scandal and a time of, of yeah. deep political conflict which which seems to be that that, that was was happening yes. there and we've got we've got we've sadly got that on both our countries haven't we at the moment yeah. well uh i would say that as far as i could tell with respect to watergate there was a separation between, you might say, the political class and the administrative class, that uh, civil servants went about their business irrespective of Watergate. And Watergate was the central concern of Congress and a few officials at the White House. 
No, I mean in the UK we've had a what what seems to me to be an undermining of the of the ability of the administrative part of government to do its job effectively. Yeah. Um, what's your take of of the degree to that has or hasn't happened in the US? It looks to me like it happened under the Trump administration in the Justice uh, Department of Justice uh, that they barely survived his attempt to wreck what they were doing. Uh, and there are some government departments that are highly politicized, like uh, the Department of the Interior that has to decide uh, what pipelines will be allowed, to what extent will we explore for oil or cut down forests. Those are highly charged political decisions that depend on who wins the election. Mm. But uh, I think in many uh, government departments, there's not much difference in what happens depending on who's in charge. They, they go about their business irrespective of uh, political events. Mm. Nice. Yeah. I guess that's good to hear. Um, so I think moving on to the onto the book then, what was it that that made you want to be involved with a book on on land and taxation? Well, it was a suggestion of Fred Harrison. Uh, and the uh, the topics are all interesting ones. Uh, Gaffney's paper on land as a distinctive factor of production, I think is very important because, so many economists think of land as another form of capital, and it just isn't another form of capital, both economically and morally. Yeah, and uh, so it, it, it's very good to have that argument spelled out in detail. And then, uh, uh, my paper is is on the issue of uh, when a tax on land is efficient and when it isn't that there uh some people treat taxes on this uh the capital gains on land or taxes on the realized rent of land as if they were equivalent to a tax on the rental value of land and they're they're just they're not equivalent it's important to make the distinction between the taxes that are efficient and the ones that aren't and i think that that's the, the central message of my paper mm. Then we have Fred Foldberry's paper, uh, which makes the point that wages are going to be lower when land is not used efficiently. And one of the sources of land not being used efficiently is land speculation, which is promoted by not taxing land. So if you tax land, you reduce land speculation and thereby raise wages. Uh, in addition to collecting revenue that they then don't have to collect by a tax on wages. So th this mechanism for raising wages by taxing land is important to understand. And then the last paper is by Vic Blundell on the disasters in the United Kingdom from making the government the monopoly owner of development rights. I think that housing prices in England are much higher than they need to be because development is so restricted. It's understandable that people should be unhappy about 
landowners making huge profits when they develop their land, but the cure to that is to is to tax land. Uh, it, it just doesn't work very well at all to uh, wait for development until the government wants to do it. Uh, you and you have uh, the difficulty that. When land prices rise, this benefits everybody who already owns land, who tends to be older people, and it makes the acquisition of a house of one's own almost impossible for young people. But young people will never be the majority that can pass the legislation in their interest to uh, tax the land and bring the, the price of land down to, make the development happen because uh, people who already own their houses are unhappy with the prospect of having land prices fall. Mm. Yeah. Now, now thinking about, um, I know Fred was the, the editor of the hall of the, the George's paradigm books, wasn't he? Yes. Um, and I know one of the things he, he says in the in the book is that the authors of this book are are united by the vision of what could be achieved by an enlightened policy, fairness in the payments to the community, a heightened level of personal prosperity, and a liberation of the community of a kind that would constitute a social renaissance. Yes, I uh, agree with that. And I mean, I know. I mean, one of the Fred things at the end of the book, he wrote a, um, an epilogue chapter such short chapter called postscript on the near on neoclassicalism death rattle of a deadly paradigm um it was sadly um something that's still rattling today isn't it really yes what's your what level of optimism did you guys have when you wrote the book how how successful did you expect yourselves to be i don't think we asked that question it's a calling it's what we know we need to do whether or not it succeeds Right. No, brilliant. Because when I when I was reading it, um, this you know, in preparation for this conversation, it was, it just seemed even more relevant today than it than it would have it would have seemed to me in nineteen ninety four five when, um, the problems were obviously manifest but not quite as pronounced. Um, you know this this whole the whole thing. I know you've written a bit about externalities, um. I mean, in the UK, we've got a scandal at the moment because the water companies are, are making massive profits and, and literally pumping raw sewage into the sea. Um, and and it's legal. Um, the extraordinary thing is that the, the, the conservative government voted it in and, and said that that was OK. Um, and there's very little investment in new infrastructure and just, you know, bills keep rising. And then we've got the energy crisis, which for me really is just a, a fabulous example of you know, of monopoly power. Yes. Uh, it, it's very difficult to get all parts of a society working properly. The voters have a choice between one party and the other and uh, don't have the chance to decide uh, issue by issue uh, what they want. And it's hard for people to be knowledgeable about all the things that matter. So all of that adds to the difficulty of getting a decision-making environment that comes up with good decisions. Mm. I think one of the things I appreciated that was, in, especially in, in, in your paper, 
was a historical context you gave by looking at the the idea around taxing land through history from the physiocrats um all the way up to henry george yes uh the idea that taxing land is both efficient and fair is something that sort of weaves in and out of history and uh, is easier to explain when you do it in historical context. Mm. Yeah, and just this whole thing. And the thing that stood out for me that when I was reading your bit and then going on and reading some of the final comments from um, from Fred was a way in which it, was, it wasn't so much, um, you know, the corruption of economics of getting rid of George's point of view, but it was just... You know this idea that had that you know the, the the view that you articulated the historical perspective came in then the rent seeker slash freeloader wouldn't have been able to dominate the economy the way that i see them dominating now yes i've become fond of a quotation that i can't get perfectly from sinclair lewis in the early 20th century uh the quote goes something like it's hard for a man to understand something when the salary depends on his not understanding it. But I think for the word salary, I'd like to place, place the word wealth. Mm. It's hard for a man to understand something with his, when the perpetuation of his wealth depends on his not understanding it. Uh, human beings have this built-in blindness that makes it difficult for them to see things that are financially costly for them to see. And that that makes it very difficult for those of us want to get people to understand that the existing order is unjust as well as inefficient. So what was it that you see in the book then, that, that the argument that you guys set forth, and it really was a, I mean, as close to a dream team of, of economists as you could have got, I would have said, really. Um, what was it that, that still, what argument now is still relevant that you made in the book to prove that, you know, to, to convince someone of yeah. Of a better way. Yeah. Well, we have poverty and we have inefficiency. And they both can be dealt with by sharing the rent of land. Uh, if, if we shared the rent of land, that would do a, quite a bit for the worst cases of poverty. And when we share the rent of land, we motivate people to use land efficiently, and that raises wages. And the, the the key thing, I guess, there is really when you look at what you were saying about the importance of urban land value is that it's the land value there comes from our collaborative work and our collaborative endeavors together. Yes, is what does it? What value does a community produce rather than the individual? Yeah, what what value do we get by? being so closely connected to one another. Uh, the, the value of connection is so great that we find it worthwhile to pay the high rents of being in the cities. Uh, we wouldn't tolerate those rents if we didn't get a return uh, in productivity for the connectivity that that generates. Hmm. When you look back on on your life, Nate, what, what events have shaped you and your thinking the most? Well, one recurring theme in a lot of what I do is the economic principle of the efficiency of marginal cost pricing. 
so this is related to such things as the need for a carbon tax, uh, the destruction, destructive power of taxes on working and saving, uh, the need to internalize externalities generally. Uh, the It even has applications to the theory of efficient decision-making, that you can have a system that charges people marginal cost pricing for their participation in decisions. Uh, it's an unusual idea in economics that was first uh, discovered by a fellow student of mine at the University of Chicago, an idea that I had a very hard time understanding, partly because it was so radical and partly because uh, he didn't have a good way of connecting it to other things that I knew. But the the idea that you can take the principle of the efficiency of marginal cost pricing and apply it even to decision-making, as well as to taxation and externalities everywhere else, is just a, uh, a very important organizing principle that I apply to this general question of what the right thing to do is. So, so what it, what then is marginal cost pricing? Just for any viewers that, that are not okay. familiar with it, uh, it means that uh, well, take water. Uh, it comes freely down from the skies, uh, but in a limited quantity, and uh, it has to be filtered and cleaned and pumped and. Uh, put through pipes that uh, uh, depreciate and it has some delivered price and it has a, a value to the customer. And you want to have the efficiency that comes from allocating the, the water in such a way that uh, everybody faces the same price. Let me uh, take that a little bit farther. In the United States, we offer low prices for water to farmers. When industries that could would value it much more highly go without. And we ought to be charging farmers as much as anybody else for water, even if that means we have a less, lot less agricultural output. In order to allocate water efficiently, we have to charge everybody the same price. We need to find the price at which the market clears. That that then establishes what the marginal cost is of 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 water. The marginal cost is how much it value would produce in some other use. So there's an example of the efficiency of marginal cost pricing and the cost of not the social cost of not using marginal cost pricing. So is that was it, is there something in there about the opportunity cost pricing yes. as well? Yeah. So the, the, sometimes the marginal cost is the marginal cost of production, but other times the marginal cost is the opportunity cost. Right. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Hmm. Fantastic. And and if you're looking back on, on your career as well, then just thinking about the bigger stuff, whether it's your work in, in decision making or you know finding out what's fair and how to decide what to do when when we all disagree 
what wisdom would you could you offer the the listeners just um just looking back on your whole career another principle that seems to connect things is that it's very important to have human freedom human opportunity to choose that we can't expect to get things right when we have dictators uh, that we we need to have institutions that, that allow people to participate in decision making uh, and to uh, form new organizations if they don't like the way the existing ones are working and so the, what we've got there is a, a fabulous um in, indictment on on the on the the damage that monopoly yes. does to things right because then we don't have a choice yeah yes the damage of monopoly and then correspondingly of authoritarian regimes and we've certainly had a, a dramatic rise in authoritarian actions so i'm not saying the regime is you know in the no. us or the uk or yeah, other... no, I, I, well i'm thinking of globally here yeah but but did there, there are authoritarian elements that are uh threatening every to fire to, to gain power and uh we need to continually make sure we don't allow them to grab the power they're looking for mm. well i think i mean in the uk talking about about that we've had the you know just the the rise of authoritarian even if it's for our own good um of, of, of increasingly authoritarian actions from um from politicians and but yes. i guess one of the other things about being free to choose is also having the information to make the choice right and again given the level of censorship that we've seen in in lots of areas for, for whatever reason however however right we may think the reason is um if we have imperfect information then we're going to make imperfect choices aren't we yes uh getting the information right is uh a challenge and that then relates to the question of uh, what kind of freedom the purveyors of misinformation should be allowed. Uh, I noticed that some people are being sued for the lies that they told around the election, uh, for the commercial damage that the lies did. And uh, that's, I think, uh, probably a good thing, that when people tell lies that do damage, they, they have to pay. Uh, that's uh, th that will probably improve our ability to get the information correctly. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess it, it, again, just having having agents in positions of authority that are, that are, that are free and and acting in our interests, aren't they? Really, which I think I guess is a a theme of all your work. Really, is mm -hmm. is how can we act independently? How can we choose freely in a way that benefits ourselves and others? um you know and in a way that doesn't hurt another right because if i'm if i if we're in a disagreement and we both know that we can leave if we want to then i'm going to want you to stay right because i want the value that you bring to our conversation yeah. and our relationship yes uh the, the the freedom to leave is essential to getting people to value the the continuation of the relationship mm. brilliant is there anything you'd like to say um to our listeners um to to persuade them to get the the book other than what the things that we've been talking about? Ah, oh, well, it's uh, for 
essays from very different perspectives that each will teach you a, an important aspect of land economics if you don't already know it. Mm, totally. And I, and I absolutely think that the late, great Nathan Gaffney's essay, The Land on, on This as a Distinctive Factor of Production, I think that, that I, love the, I love the book. I think that chapter in itself or that paper was, was probably the clearest I've ever seen um, in Mason's yes. work or anyone else. It's absolutely stunning, the clarity that he brought to that and the, the conversational nature that he communicated, really quite challenging economic concepts, aren't they, some of them? Yes. Uh, I heard him discussing that subject for many years before the paper. So I know that that paper was the, the result of many years of thought. And he did have a just a marvelous writing style. Yeah, well, it's it's great that the book's back in back in print. So, thank you for for what you did, and and thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit our website www.shepherdwalwyn.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading. <laughs>